Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. For one day, we uh, made the price of Johnson & Johnson stock go down. But in the great (laughs) tradition of a company that specializes in marketing bad products, it was back where it had been (laughs) two days later. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, do you want to tell everybody uh, how you spent your weekend? Because I happen to know. Actually, you know what? You don't know, Steve. Oh, I thought I knew. You thought you you knew. I had plans to go to a music festival here in Atlanta. I did go on Friday. Then I had to work Saturday and Sunday. (laughs) You're, man, your bosses. I know. (laughs) My my bosses are real pains in the ass. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah, so I didn't go. I ended up taking the uh, advantage of the time that my puppy was at the vet boarding um, to try to crank out some work, so... (laughs) Well, very good. Very good. I'm Pretty glad lame. you, uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that's a great example. Uh, you know, skip the music festival and stay home and do work <laughs> <laughs> and prep for the podcast. Right. That's right. Of course. Of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, let me get to introducing our guest who hopefully had a better weekend than mine. Our guest is Mike Kelly. He's a shareholder at walk up Melodia Kelly and Schoenberger. Um, you can look him up at walkuplawoffice.com. That's W-A-L-K-U-P lawoffice.com. Might sound familiar from our recent guest, Doris Chang, who is at the same firm. Um, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. And please tell me you had a better weekend than I did. Oh, I guess I, I, I'd love to tell you that. But actually, I went to a small college here in California. I went to watch them play for the National Rugby Championship against Army in Houston, of all places. And uh, they lost. So oh. I'm not sure <laughs> if I should have been here at work. But um, uh, I, actually, it was a, kind of a special trip. So it wasn't yes, that uh- yeah. Watching rugby sounds like fun. And unfortunately, oh, yeah. it didn't turn out the way you wanted. But uh, but still sounds like an overall pretty good weekend. No, it was a, it was a fine weekend. High, highs and lows. Yes. Um, whereas mine was just boring and lame. So I'm going to say <laughs> that my yours was better, Mike. Um, All right. Well, for our listeners who don't know you, let me um, brag on you a little bit. Um, we are really excited to have Mike on the show to talk about the case that we are going to talk about today. But before we get into it, Um, Mike has been practicing for about four decades in all of sort of the big areas that you would expect medical devices, which we're going to talk about today, products, liability, motor vehicle accidents, workplace injuries, protecting consumers. Um, He's just really checking all the boxes. He has tried, settled and arbitrated more than 200 cases where his, his client's recovery exceeded $1 million. So that is some serious experience. We have a we have a lot of experienced people on the show, Steve, but that is yes. uh, next level. Um, one of the cases you might have heard about that Mike helped handle was in uh, 20, uh, 2020. He helped negotiate the um, multi-billion dollar resolution of the 2017 California wildlife lawsuits brought against um, PG&E. Um, one of his other big cases is the one we're going to talk about today, which was an $8.341 million verdict um, in the first uh, Depew um, ASR Johnson & Johnson metal and metal artificial hip case, which I think a lot of people, including non-lawyers, ended up actually hearing about in the news. But I think a lot of people don't really know what was going on. Um, I certainly didn't know half the things that I knew uh, uh, that I know now in preparing for today's episode. So we'll get into that in a second. Um, Just a little bit more about Mike. He is in the inner circle of advocates. Um, He's been named the top 10 uh, list of on the top 10 list of lawyers in Northern California for um, many, many times. Um, He's in Law Dragons Hall of Fame for his pro consumer work. Um, He's been elected trial lawyer of the year by the California chapter of the American uh, of of Aboda and the San Francisco Trial Lawyers Association. Um, But in addition to that, um, like many of our guests, um, Mike is somebody who gives back by teaching others in the profession. Um, He speaks for 360 Advocacy a lot and and chairs their um, annual trucking litigation program. Um, He speaks for ABOTA, Consumer Attorneys of California, AAJ, uh, San Francisco Trial Lawyers Association, Bar Association of San Francisco. Um, And he also um, 
was a former professor at the University of California, um, Hastings. And I'm, I want to know what you taught, Mike. I taught uh, evidence. I taught uh, trial ad. I uh, taught some specialized two-unit seminars. I did uh, 20 years of, uh, of law school teaching, mostly because, honestly, uh, there's nothing like being around energized, smart, young people who have not become cynical. And, uh, <laughs> and I actually took the occasion to do informal focus groups for cases I was trying with my students. So, I mean, it was really a joy. Uh, but uh, like anything, you know, it reminded me of being in law school myself. After 20 years of doing it, I thought this doesn't feel fresh anymore. Uh, and uh, so I moved on to do other stuff. But that was actually uh, it was a lot of fun and it was energizing for me. What kind of um, professor were you? Were you a Socratic method having people stand up and grilling them or? No, not, you know, not the Professor Kingsley type, but, uh, you know, if you were going to be in my class, you had to be prepared because it was about participation. It was about trying to get better. And, and most of those kind of learning by doing scenarios require everybody to work. You know, there's no learning by watching. It doesn't work very well. Yeah. Totally. I, and I always think back to how nervous I was for, for those heavily Socratic classes, 1L year. And it's good preparation. You know, at the time it feels like torture, but it is very good preparation for what practicing law can be like. I'm old enough that when I went to law school there, Hastings was the second largest uh, school in the country that had 500 students. So there were five sections of 100 people with a professor and an alphabetical seating chart and a seat you were supposed to be in. Um, and I will say that there were days I sat in somebody else's seat because I right. wasn't <laughs> <laughs> right. Switch seats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My gosh. Um, well, anyway, that, um, I'm sure Raz don't get too scared. Our producers, our producers go starting law school in the fall. So Raz, how do you feel? Are you okay? Um, I think I, <laughs> 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 any, any advice for a one L student that's old oh, going, think, back, going back to school? Uh, I would simply say, make sure you do the reading. Yeah. Uh, because okay. you'll get called on at the least likely moment. It's like getting substituted into a baseball game and all of a sudden everyone hits the ball at you. So uh, <laughs> they'll be ready. So okay. Raz, Raz, just to make you feel better, I always found that the students, uh, which I was not one of, but the students who had gone and, and had a career and then came back to law school, they always did very, very well. Uh, I, I went straight from college to law school, which eh, maybe was a mistake, but I mean, I made it through okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you'll do great. I'm, I'm gonna Raz. do my best. I'm gonna do my best, even if that's my worst. <laughs> the worst. Plus, yeah, right. plus, Raz, you're co you're coming in with uh, sitting through every episode of the Great Trials podcast. Right. So that's right, right. right. You got literally you've heard heard from you yeah. know hundreds of just great trial lawyers about how to try cases. So yeah, yeah. yeah. You're so gonna I'm read. Ready. You're gonna read about their cases in law school and be like, I met him. No big deal. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, Anyway, so I, I mentioned Mike's case earlier that we're going to talk about today, um, and let's dig into it. I think a lot of people heard about it on the news probably at some point during the litigation because it was pretty massive, but Mike's case was one of the first... Um, if not the first, that's one of the it questions. Was the I, first. It was yeah. the first yeah. um, case arising out of these defective hip, hip implants. Um, so the case was uh, Lauren Bill Kransky um, versus, I keep wanting to say Dupuy, Depew <laughs> Orthopedics. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, this was an eight point, over $8.3 million verdict. Um, so I'm just going to give a brief overview and then we'll dig into Mike really telling us uh, what was going on here. But Mike's client um, was a U.S. Air Force veteran, uh, Bill Kransky, and he underwent hip replacement surgery uh, in Montana. And he received this hip replacement that ended up being um, the subject of this litiga litigation and a, a massive uh uh, multi-plaintiff litigation that ended up, I don't think I said this earlier, but Mike's case ended up helping lead to a $2.5 billion um, national settlement for, for victims that received this implant. Um, uh, Depew, <laughs> I don't know why this is so hard for me. Depew um, 
uh, at the time was a subsidiary of Johnson and Johnson. And this hip was called the, the ASR or the ASR XL hip, um, hip system. And it was marketed in Europe first. And um, there started being reports of problems with this hip implant in Europe. But despite that, it was marketed here in the US as a low wear product that would do really well, that would not um, require replacement down the road and was really just pushed out to the doctors that were going to put it into patients, despite the fact that I think this would shock a lot of people. There were no clinical trials. So the only studies that were done were sort of lab controlled studies. They weren't actually put in people's bodies to test until they were just released to market. And so the actual patients were um, the guinea pigs, essentially. Um, so Mr. Kransky received one of these implants. And as you uh, might predict, he ended up having a lot of problems. And a recall, so he received the implant in 2007. The recall wasn't announced until 2010. And we'll talk about why that recall might have really happened because um, while you might think it's them finally doing the right thing, it sounds like it's more they didn't have any more to sell. So then they decided it was time to recall it. Um, but at that point, the damage was done for a lot of patients, including uh, Mr. Kransky. He ultimately had another surgery despite um, very precarious health condition um, because the hip implant was releasing toxic metal basically into his body. Um, and Mike is going to explain uh, for us a little bit more about how that happens. Um, as I mentioned, an LA jury found in Mr. Kransky's favor and awarded over $8.3 million um, for the pain caused by the defective design, Led helped lead to a, a, a a billion dollar, $2.5 billion national settlement. Um, Mike, I'm hoping I, I alluded to this and, and kind of messed it up earlier. So um, before we get in too far, I'm hoping you can talk about your case and how it sort of came to be, you know, what, what you knew at the time, what you expected going into trying it, being the, being the first basically to, to try one of these cases. So, uh, you know, in all of these national cases, uh, the defense is in all of them. I don't care what it is. It is delay and confusion. I like to think of like uh, two little Jiminy Crickets on the shoulder of the defense lawyers, Mr. or Mrs. Delay, Mr. or Mrs. Confusion. And, uh, and what happened here was the uh, inventors of this device included a panel of five doctors, two of whom were in California. One was the chair of orthopedics at uh, UCSF, the, the medical school of the University of California in San Francisco. And another was a Los Angeles surgeon. So the, the case, this case to get to trial was kind of uh, not one one anybody would expect. We have a veteran who was operated on in Montana. We have an MDL that's headquartered in Cleveland without any trial dates. And in California, we had something north of 2000 patients um, who had filed here under our J, uh, MDL-like statute called JCCP, and I was lead counsel for that. Uh, and so I collaborated with the lawyers in the MDL to do the liability discovery. And um, it happened. Uh, California has a procedure for a patient whose uh, health is fragile to have your case uh, move to the head of the line. And so this trial actually uh, let me work with two terrific lawyers, Brian Panish and John Gomez. And, um, you know, uh, we are in a, a profession where some lawyers have egos that are too big for one person's body. Uh, and we had really a, a terrific synergy of collaboration between John and Brian and myself with uh, everybody had their place. This was John's client who he knew well from Montana, was Brian's venue because we got our, the, although the California cases were in San Francisco, we got our judge to ship us to LA because they had an available courtroom. Uh, and I had done much of the critical discovery, uh, taking depositions both here in the United States as well as in Europe where Depew had essentially developed the product. As you said, Depew is a subsidiary of J&J. They've since changed their name because they didn't like the outcome of this case. Um, and, uh, and so we had uh, really a remarkable uh, situation. Montana plaintiff, I got to keep it in California because the two doctors were from here who, were, uh, who hated the fact they had been sued, by the way. 
even though they were co-inventors and they had a financial incentive. Um, and we, we drew a judge in Los Angeles who he loved trying cases in an era when people are complaining about vanishing trials, in my opinion, in part because judges don't like trials. They see them as the failure of mediation. We had a judge who tried all the long, hard cases in L.A., and we had uh, uh, and we had uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this case is it for me, it shows all the defenses. Uh, and uh, and of course, it also has some pieces to it that are novel and unique and uh you know, uh, Johnson and Johnson has, as we've seen through the years, a knack for uh, uh, focusing much more on dollars than on patient safety, and so that's uh, that's the short version. Yeah, it's. Re- I'm sorry. Go ahead, Steve. Well, I, I was just going to make uh, point out that you, uh, you mentioned Brian Panish and John Gomez, both of whom have been uh, been on the podcast and uh, and and done uh, great in their perspe- uh, respective uh, episodes. But, um, you know, one thing that we haven't pointed out about the damages award, uh, it, there was $338,000 in medical expenses, but the vast majority of the award, the $8 million, was uh, essentially pain and suffering and, and emotional distress. And uh, and so that's just really, uh, you know, an excellent job because my understanding of his injuries were essentially pain. I mean, it was it was chronic pain. And then obviously he had to get this revision surgery, but it, it's it's basically just being able to uh, get the jury to understand the amount of pain that that uh, Mr. Crancy is going through and make them understand, uh, you know, what this means to him. Also, somebody who is 65 years old. So, uh, you know, later, later in years as well. So that is a a, a, a tremendous verdict for a, a, pain, a, you know, largely pain and suffering uh, award. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, this is a really good example of a jury seen through the baloney, right? The defense in most of these cases is uh, it's your fault, meaning the patient. There's something wrong with you. And look, you're, you stay on this earth 65, 66 years. This is a gentleman who had been exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam. Uh, he had previously had a stroke. Uh, he'd previously been treated for kidney cancer. Uh, he had a host of other underlying health conditions. And and really, we tried it on the basis that this is the last thing that this person needed at this point in his life when all he wanted to do was enjoy his spouse and his kids and his grandkids and um, thought that, it, you know, his doctor believed the advertising that this was uh, a hip that would last forever. Uh, this was a hip that would be without significant complications. And um, and he was really the poster person uh, for all the things that were wrong with it. Uh, and, um, you know, it took this jury, interestingly, you know, the case took roughly six weeks to try. This jury was out for more than four days uh, trying to figure out how to get to the right place. So uh, so they worked hard. Yeah. I mean, one of the things if you if you read in reading your opening that that I think any lawyer sees and is like, yikes, is that um, Mr. Kransky had a lot of pre-existing conditions. I mean, he had a lot going on health-wise. He, he was in Vietnam. He had previous Agent Orange exposure. He, um, so he had, he had health consequences from that. He was, you know, getting older. Um, but one of the things that I thought was, was really effective that you did in your opening um, was you all had sent discovery requests um, you know, that had essentially really focused in on this issue of, well, are, you know, do you contend that, that Mr. Kransky was not a good candidate for the, or, you know, whether he was a good candidate for this, this hip, and, um, or whether, and whether he was negligent in some way. And I thought that was a really, a lot of times we send, um, you know, interrogatories like that, but I, but but maybe don't connect them later or don't connect them at trial. And I thought it was really effective how you connected, you know, preparing for the the jury for the fact that, yeah, he did have other health stuff going on. um, But this hip was something that even the defendants agree was appropriate for him to receive. Right. And, and so what happened just to get a little bit either ahead or behind there, that happened for a specific reason, which was, after these hips were marketed in Europe and it started going bad, the defense of the company wasn't, let's take them off the market. The defense that the company put forward is, these doctors are doing a bad job by selecting the wrong patients. You are selecting patients with comorbidities. And interestingly, 
the cases that I had in my office originally came from orthopedic surgeons. Now, 25 to 30 percent of my entire practice for 40 years has been medical negligence. I am not any doctor's favorite person. And to have a doctor call me and say, I need you to come to my office. Uh, I want to show you what I've received for J&J was essentially a letter saying, you know, we're sorry you've had 11 bad outcomes, uh, but you're not choosing the right patients. And so from the beginning, we recognize, okay, it's blame the patient then blame the doctor uh, because we are not going to accept any blame ourselves. And that's really why we did that. We asked uh, three or four interrogatories and you commit right now um, because one of the things they had, and this happens in device cases, depending upon the device, is even after they recalled it, they had a, a greater than a majority of orthopedic surgeons saying, I love these hips. They're easy to put in. I love the technique. I love the way it works. My patients are happy. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were way too gullible and way too ready uh, to get the next shiny object, which this was, right? Orthopedic surgeons, I think of them as carpenters in blood. Uh, right. And they love new stuff. They love new tools. They love new gadgets. And this hit the sweet spot with the way J&J &J marketed it. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization. It's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. I was wondering if um, since the since one of J&J &J or, or uh, Depew's uh, defenses was to blame the orthopedic surgeons for it, was there a, was there a... Uh, um, an urge to uh, include the doctors who had done the surgeries in the lawsuits? And, and how did you uh, how did you ultimately decide not to include them? So it's a great question, Steve. And California, for whatever reputation we have garnered as a home of liberalism, has the most restrictive damage caps in medical malpractice cases. We have a hard $250,000 pain and suffering cap since 1978. Uh, and uh, a bunch of uh, evidentiary prohibitions, uh, a requirement of mandatory um, annuitization or periodic payments for verdicts. And so we wanted to be nowhere near that. So it was important for us uh, to get the doctor out of this picture. Now, this doctor uh, who did this procedure at a VA hospital and uh, Montana, you know, wouldn't have been subject to them, except the California cases are so horrible on this topic. doesn't matter where you're practicing medicine. They would have or this judge would have been compelled to apply our restrictions uh, had had the doctor been sued. Um, and then I, 
I'm sorry, go just, ahead, Steve. Just one thing, sorry. So I guess, does the doctor then become sort of your uh, your advocate or your friend uh, in, in the courtroom because they know they're being blamed by the pew and, and you know, they're doing the best they can for their patient? Again, a, a terrific question. The doctors are so confused about <laughs> whose side they're supposed to be on. They really want, they want to, uh, you know, most of them are would like to help their patient, but they've been told by their insurance company, you know, don't take any position. They're usually represented at deposition. And in this case, we didn't bring the Montana doctors live. We had them on video. And he got, uh, Bill Kransky got lucky. Uh, most people who are treated in VA centers would not say they were lucky, but uh, Bill Kransky was lucky because his uh, VA doctor in Montana was a guy who was all for his patients, all for the veterans. And when he opened him up and looked inside, he said, there's something very wrong here. Uh, and he wasn't about to take sides and testify on liability, but he was certainly well prepared to say, you know, this is not right. This is not normal. Yeah, we've talked about so many times and when we talk about med mal, not just med mal cases, but how important it is to have a treater that's actually willing to sort of um, be a part of the case. You know, there's there's some who are willing to talk to the lawyer, but they don't want to get involved in the case. And and so you kind of yeah. got to force them or twist their arm or whatever. Um, it's such a huge help. Um well, I sort of I sort of glossed over it, Mike, and I know that you're kind of restricted because this is a podcast, so you can't use demonstratives or anything. But I'm I'm hoping you could explain for our listeners, just in a general sense, what what was different about this hip implant and what made it so dangerous. Well, so uh, here's the, uh, the here's what happens. Um, hips are supposed to last twenty to thirty years. Um, and the hips up until this one were all typically very hard plastic. If you shed plastic into your system, plastic typically is not toxic. Uh, obviously, if you believe uh, in uh, creationism or regular evolution, doesn't matter who was in charge. Nobody who created us thought plastic would be uh, toxic to us. But once you've given everybody a hip, it's going to last 30 years. If you're in the business of selling hips, you need something new and different and shiny. And what happened was a doctor in England uh, invented an all metal hip, advertising it as metal, which is so hard, it will never wear. There will be, uh, this is, uh, uh, I, I don't know, and, and they bought it hook, line, and sinker that I'm going to rub two perfectly smooth things against each other with uh, a thin film of uh, what's called synovial fluid, but just think of any you know, bodily fluid to create a vacuum. It's and it's going to just work like a perfect door, uh, a door hinge, if you will. It doesn't need to be oiled. You don't need anything. But in fact, first of all, uh, nobody makes things that perfect. And second, when they made this hip, and I'm going to come back to the doctors who love gadgets. Uh, if you think of your cereal bowl, and that's the hip socket, uh, along the top edge, they put a ridge in that would hold this. Uh, according to the doctors, very cool uh, device, which let them stick the new hip socket in. But in fact, what they did then was create this artificial ridge on the extreme areas of motion. If we think about the ball rotating in that cup, and of course, no matter if it was hard or not, it wore. And when it wore, it shed uh, two things that are definitely not supposed to be in your body, cobalt and chromium. And by the way, at trial, they actually brought an expert who's testified for every major corporation in the world uh, to say that, you know, cobalt and chromium are not bad for you. Fortunately, the jurors didn't need an expert to tell them, yeah, I don't come with it as original equipment. I think it's not good for me. <laughs> uh, and so uh, they created this and sold it first in Europe. And in the United States, if you have a new uh, product, a medical product, you have two choices. You can use the so-called pre-market approval, which requires clinical testing. It requires testing in people. Or you can use the process known as pre-market approval, 510K. 510K is simply you go in and say to the FDA, um, this is not something that requires PMA, pre-market approval testing. This is something that's been done before. This is essentially what we had before. And so they sold to the FDA. This metal hip is the same as the plastic hip. And they didn't have to do any human testing. They did testing on machines uh, using, uh, they could say, well, you know, this hip has been rotated a million times. There's no wear, except 
that it was at a fixed angle, which no one actually works at, uh, walks at, let alone 65-year-olds not going upstairs or downstairs or bending over or lifting or carrying or jumping. Uh, and so they really, um, when, uh, when I uh, argued the case, um, you know, uh, we had a very simple theme. The safest place for this hip is in the box. Uh, at least when it's in the box, it can't hurt anybody. And, um, but having invested so much time and seeing such a huge market, because this was to be the successor to all plastic hips in all people who would ever need them. Uh, and, uh, and they just would not let go of the fact this is not a good design. Yeah, I, you know, it, and so how long did, were they getting sort of reports from the physicians that they were sending it to or, or complaints or whatever, which, you know, I, I, one of the things you pointed out in your closing was they basically had a system des, that was sort of designed to not know too much, but how long were they getting reports and still just pushing these hips out and not really doing anything about it? So they had at least two years worth from reputable doctors, all device companies and really all drug companies. Uh, one of the ways you sell is you get somebody who's good and famous to come out and make roadshow presentations. Uh, here they refer to them as uh, as thought leaders. Uh, different people call them product champions. Um, and so they started in Europe in small Western Europe countries. They moved to India. They got the top surgeons. And you know, a little different in those places uh, because the surgeons there, orthopedists, may be like uh, eye doctors here. You know, if you go to get cataracts done, there's 40 people waiting to get their eyes done. If you go to get your hip done, maybe your surgeon does one or two that day. In Europe, people just set out a day and the doctor maybe does 10. He does 10 every day, every day, every week. And they wanted those people. And so what they intended to be kind of a positive place to get uh, happy doctors, uh, all of a sudden created a relatively good-sized epidemiological group with the best surgeons saying, hey, there's something wrong with these hips. I don't get this many people who are unhappy. I don't get hip sockets, which are loose. I don't get this happening. And it was then that they actually began to strategize, well, your patient selection is bad. And um, Really, uh, it's easy to say that, but then they were unable to articulate, okay, well, what's the right patient? Right. Uh, right. It turns out the right patient is one who doesn't need the surgery. Uh, <laughs> so that, that, that worked very poorly. Right. It, one of the points you made at trial, it, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, you were pointing out that they had, uh, the Pew had other hips that they sold. I think they were mainly plastic or hard plastic hips, and they, they had very low failure rates. Um, but that the profit margin wasn't very good for those. Correct. Um, so they so they wanted to sell these the metal on metal where the profit margin was really good, but the failure rates were crazy high. So and 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 interestingly, and and I guess it's not that surprising. You know, they had at Johnson and Johnson, they brought it to trial like a hall of fame of past hip prosthesis, going back to what things that look like Fred Flintstone would have invented. <laughs> but, but among those, say for the prior 20 years, were super hard plastic prostheses, both the joint that went into your hip and the ball. And the balls typically then would be either plastic or ceramic. The wear rate was such that maybe you had 1% failure after 20 years. And, you know, that for a long time, that was considered quite good. And there, again, there was nobody suffering from any kind of a side effect or problem with the, too much plastic debris in their system. There were no associated diseases. There was just, you know, you would pee it out. Uh, it wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't staying anywhere. And uh, but there was no money in it. It was plastic. It wasn't novel. It was old. It was the Model T. Of course, the patients were happy because they were walking around pain free um, and um, uh, and they just weren't happy. I mean, you know, like so many of these things, and I'm sure you've heard this M-O-N-E-Y, uh, if you follow it more often than not, you will get to why people behave the way they do. Yeah. So um, how did you, you know, 
you're the first, right? So the cases that come after you kind of have sort of a roadmap of what you did, what seemed to be effective with the jury, what, what didn't work as well, you know, you and your team, um, you know, and as you mentioned, you were working with great lawyers, you know, you had to kind of figure out what to do in this first one. I imagine, you know, there's certainly a lot of historical context. I imagine you've got a ton of discovery that, you know, a lot of stuff you don't care about, or you're sort of buried in that thing. How did you figure out? Cause I thought your opening was very effective. It was not super long. Um, it, but it really covered all the things that you want to cover, including, you know, sort of, explaining for people who don't understand the context of a hip replacement surgery, what it is and how it works and how it should work and how it's not that big of a deal. You've got all the client specific stuff you've got to cover. And then you've got all the liability stuff that you've got to cover. How did you go about, you know, what was your process to sort of streamline everything to get it so simple and and cover what you needed to cover without bogging things down? Yeah. Well, uh, we, we focused the case three different times. I focused it once in the MDL. We focused it twice here in California. And, you know, I think in, in some respects, it's not unlike a med mal case. And by that, I mean, it really needs to be simple. It can't involve a lot of judgment. You better figure this out for yourself. When I say you, I'm thinking of the jurors. And, and so, I mean, we, our aim here was, in fact, it's funny, uh, Yvonne, when you say that, I read that opening statement, uh, and I now see that I would make it even less technical. But the aim was, you know, what are the fundamental issues that get people pissed off? The first is that you would put anything in somebody without testing it in a human being. That came as a shock uh, to a majority of the people. Uh, the second is that um, when you think about this device, it was the first device, think of the cup that goes in as the liner of your hip socket. Your hip sockets, you know, uh, the top of your femur, the big bone has a ball on the end. Your hip socket has this cup. And all prior uh, hip sockets had holes in them in the bottom part of your, uh, your cereal bowl. So two things could happen. The doctor could see where she or he was putting it and bone could go through there. This didn't have that. So the notion that you could put it in wrong or in the wrong place or at the wrong angle and not know it was really kind of invited by the design. And uh, and the jurors understood that. And interestingly, the jurors understood the idea that because they, they advertised there will be nowhere. Uh, you know, people rolled their eyes uh, because it's one of these things. It's not possible. I, I don't care how hard the metal was. The notion that there will be nowhere, in part because there are no perfect patients. This is not exclusively for a 165-pound athletic young woman or man. I mean, most of the people who've worn out their hips, gravity has been a losing battle for them because they are too big, too fat, too old, too lazy, and and you know they're going to work that darn thing. So those three things, I think, helped us. Uh, and, you know, I'm, we thought there was the potential, which the jurors didn't give us, for punitive damages. Um, and so obviously they didn't get that upset, but they got upset enough to put themselves in the place we're not allowed to argue from the golden rule. Hey, if that's me, you know, and, and although we didn't say it out loud, everybody in the room knew somebody who had a, a bad hip who got better. Nobody gets a bad hip and gets worse. This, you know, right. so it was important that it not be novel and not be unusual. You know, this is uh, this is like making cup of soup. I, I don't need to open the cookbook for this. How come you figured it out to screw it up? Which is right. what they were expert at. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now 
Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. So, Mike, I um, thought, you know, in reading the closing, I thought that your evidence uh, for punitive damages was pretty compelling. I mean, you've got years and years of knowledge by this company uh, you know, complaints from from doctors around the world before really before they even really start selling it much in the United States, um, you know, that that uh, they're already having these major problems that uh, that that they're wearing, you know, and then they and then they do this brochure that basically says, you know, th- this is not going to wear, even though they had exactly the same, you know, opposite information coming to them. Uh, you know, in Europe and other places. I don't know if you got a chance to talk to the jury. Did you get a sense of uh, what was their decision there on not uh, deciding to to give punitive damages? Well, so uh, interestingly, uh, by the time we get to the end of the trial, uh, the defense really has loaded up uh, all barrels of their weapon on, look, this gentleman has so many things going wrong you can't tell me our hip is responsible for this. As I said, he had the Agent Orange, he had kidney cancer, he has high blood pressure, he's had a stroke, um, he had um, uh, some arterial issues with his heart. And I think uh, the jurors were prepared to say, well, he didn't deserve this. Uh, But I do think that that kind of moderated how they looked at it. Um, That's number one. And number two, you know, you get five weeks of experts who are getting paid a big price um, and to talk about how complicated this is. And I think that wore on them a little bit, too. Um, there were never there were only a handful of cases tried after this. They did not want to try another one. Uh, they And I don't think it had to do necessarily with us, but it had to do with rolling the dice. I don't think they took their best shot. This was not an unprepared case. Everybody was all in. And I think they didn't want to take that risk. Subsequently, I think there were a couple tried. I know one was lost, two were won. Nobody got any punitive damages. Um, And perhaps that's because in terms of the global scope of the injury, you weren't dealing with a head injury, with uh, you're not dealing with uh, people with major wage losses because most of the people were retired. There was a modest amount of economic damage because the fix is a hip surgery. Uh, and so, you know, they thought it was, I, I, this is, I'm projecting here, but I mean, I think they knew it was morally wrong. Uh, but they figured once you got fixed, you could be fixed. And, um, 
And and I, so that's my take on that. But certainly yeah. there was enough wrongdoing. There just wasn't enough uh, collateral anger. One of the things, and I was going to ask you about how you dealt with this, but I'm imagining one of their defenses was, you know, because you did a great point of, of pointing out how they didn't do any testing, didn't do, you know, put this in patients beforehand, didn't see how it was going to do in them. But I guess their response to that would be, or I'm assuming was, well, the FDA didn't require that. Um, and we did what the FDA required. And so I guess, you know, they're, they're, you know, that is a similar defense you see in these product liabilities that we, right. you know, comply with all the regulations that the government puts on us. So, you know, we're doing exactly what they said we can do. So I guess that, you know, is always a, a difficult argument to overcome, but, uh, but also, you know, doesn't help on the punitive damages. How did you all, how did you all face that sort of argument that, that they did what the FDA allowed them to do essentially? So we actually kept the FDA out of the case because okay. we didn't make that claim. We didn't go anywhere near it. We didn't go anywhere near regulations. Uh, and we got a favorable ruling on that. Uh, we had focus grouped it. Um, you know, I never know what to make. I do a fair amount of device work. I hate the FDA compliance argument. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you look at wonderful verdicts other people have gotten. And I think at, at some level, uh, I, I think uh, FDA is a uh, potential deal breaker when you've got a 50-50 case. It's enough right. to move it to the <laughs> other side. But when you've got something where you can demonstrate, I think, palpable wrongdoing, um, most jurors are smart enough to say, well, because they've got to admit they're primarily responsible, even FDA or no FDA, primary responsibility for the safety of the device and the safety of human beings rests with them no matter what. Um, you know, it's it looks worse, uh, I think, than it is if you've got a real defect, if you've got a real injury, uh, and if you've got a uh, compelling plaintiff. And I, and I want to say that, you know, uh, this was John Gomez's client, and John did really just a wonderful job uh, preparing and doing the direct of Bill and his family. Because as you mentioned earlier, Steve, you know, what is this? This is basically, uh, I need a new hip. You know, nobody gets $8 million for I need a new hip. Um, I mean, think of it as an auto case, right? You're getting a hit in an intersection. You know, I, I don't know where you practice, but those verdicts go anywhere from a couple hundred thousand bucks to maybe a million dollars. Um, and so, uh, you know, the the really the impact on his life, having been uh, what he'd been through, as Yvonne said, but just saying, OK, I'm here, I'm alive, I'm going to enjoy this. And then having this handed to him uh, did a very good job having the jurors acknowledge that, you know, this is the last thing that this person needed. So, yeah. Uh, so related to that, Mike, I'm curious, as you guys are trying this case, you know, how much. Um, you know, in terms of the trial team and, and the lawyers you're working with, you know, how much are you going into the trial or going into the next day, kind of knowing who's doing what and how much were you sort of working shop stuff? I mean, workshopping stuff at night, doing stuff on the fly. Um, so we absolutely knew what we were doing. We were all in the same war room. Uh, Bill Kransky actually wasn't doing well health-wise during the trial. I was actually worried at one point he was not going to survive the trial. Uh, and so we knew kind of where we were, how long it was taking. And, uh, you know, they were making the trial longer than it had to been so they could overly complicate it. Um, there wasn't too much we did on the fly, but there was some. I made a, uh, you know, they brought in some orthopedic surgeon who, uh, was, I don't know, descended from uh, uh, Hippocrates. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, he came in and talked and talked about how this was at the wrong angle. Uh, about the only thing particularly creative that I did, I went to Walgreens at lunch and searched for a protractor. I'm old enough that, you know, in grammar school, I had to have one of these. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, I think these angles are wrong. And I'm a person who flunked math first year of high school. So uh, the notion <laughs> that I was able to eyeball that uh, and, uh, and that was the most, uh, on the fly thing I did. I walked in with my Walgreens bag and said, um, Dan, these things in high school, uh, you know, like with half a circle, of course he, since he knew everything, oh, you're probably speaking of a protractor. I said, like one of these, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would you put this up on the screen, please? 
And then he tried to measure his thing to get it right, you know. And of course, you should, the, the rules are for all lawyers, never try an experiment for the first time in trial. But I'm figuring, you know, I'm impressed by this guy. We got, we better show up. We got to show something's wrong with him. Right. Like he's a liar. <laughs> Uh, but then, and of course, he was lying and he had a very hard time getting my 98 cent protractor to measure what his testimony had been earlier. Uh, but beyond that, you know, we were we'd spent two and a half years getting ready. We'd spent three times focusing it. We talked a lot to each other. Um, each of us on the team had our own strengths. And, you mm -hmm. know, my my partners in that deal were great lawyers. And and I look uh it's wonderful to be in a place where you can trust the people you're with, where it's yeah. not about us. It's about the clients. Uh, and you've, there was, you know, you know that you're not going to get something to happen um, uh, where you can't turn to somebody and say, I'm not sure what the law is here, you know, and uh, where posted immediately landed on your, uh, the left side of the leg of your pants. Oh, of course, you know, Smith versus, <laughs> right. Smith versus Jones. I was like, so yeah. yeah. So we were uh, we were locked in a room. Uh, I'm um, I'm uh, there's not much drama there. Working and uh, and trying to get it right. Yeah. So did you know, especially since you were worried about Mr. Kransky's health, sort of, you know, leading up to trial, was he there? You know, how did you all handle him and his family? Were they there every day, or or what'd you do? Uh, he was there most of the time till his health faltered a little bit. Uh, he, his wife and he and two of his daughters and actually much of the damage testimony we put on through one of his daughters because he was in really good shape uh, the first couple of weeks and then not so good. Um, and uh, and actually, John Gomez put uh, um, on one of his daughters and did a remarkable job, really of, um, you know, John is very good um, at teasing out uh, the personal stories. Mm -hmm. um, I am, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of old school guy. I love cross-examining people who are lying. Yeah. There's nothing I like better. I don't even have any hobbies. I, that's why I do this. <laughs> I've confused just, my job by my hobbies. <laughs> Just meet random people in the street and start yeah, cross-examining. That's right. I used to joke, you know, the kids, I'd come home for dinner. My wife would say, you know, you would not ask the kids how, how it was today. You would say today was good, right? <laughs> right, right. School, school was fine, right? That's right. <laughs> well, you know, one thing I do have to point out about how you did, you know, you, you handled damages uh, at the end is I, I thought it was very effective because you you were talking about his daughter's testimony and then talking about like all the different things he did, you know, during the day and how no matter what he did, he was in pain. So, you know, whether he's getting up in the morning, he's in pain, whether he's walking down the street, he's in pain, whether he you know has to go use the restroom, he's in pain, you know, whatever it is, he's in pain. And so it sort of just did that great job of, you know, like getting the jury to understand that like, there's no point in time in the day when he's not sitting there and in pain, even when he's just sitting watching TV, you know, or, or doing nothing, he's still in pain. And, uh, and I, I just thought that was, uh, I thought that was really effective. So, you know, I, thank you. Um, um, I, I don't think there's uh, anybody who's born a great lawyer. I think the people who are competent at this have practiced a lot and have taken notes and have stolen from others. And, and one of the things I'm blessed to have had the opportunity to teach lots of lawyers through various courses and with NIDA and with other places is that generally small facts are more persuasive than big conclusions. And so if you can simply give somebody a handful of irrefutable facts you know, uh, and in that case, you know, whether I'm standing up frying an egg or I'm taking out the garbage or I'm walking in and out of my car and I can find the things that connect with people, uh, it's so much more persuasive than saying, oh, well, you know, every day is so hard and every night is so painful. But but none of that, uh, you know, conjures up in the mind of the listener. They're not experiencing that, but everybody's taking out the garbage. Everybody has to sit down on their toilet. Everybody has to get up from there. Um, everybody has to mow their lawn. Everybody has to screw in a light bulb. Whatever those things are, the average movements that you have to make. And, and really, when you think about, we don't think about our hips because they don't hurt. 
You know, it's like if you ever cut your finger, there's a place on your finger. If you put it in your pocket, you cut it there. It hurts so darn much. You didn't know it was there. And that's really what we tried to do was every day you're walking, sitting, bending, and and you don't feel at your house, but he feels that it is. Right, right. One of the things I, I it looked like the, the part of the defense here, I mean, in, in addition to claiming that the maybe the doctors picked the wrong patient, but was there some claim that he was suffering from an infection and that it wasn't a um, the the sort of metal leaching into his blood or or the wear of it? It was it, what instead right. he was dealing with was an infection. How, how did how did that all come out? And how did you handle that? Yeah. And so, you know, first they attacked him for the kind of global injuries and then postoperatively, uh, not unusual in a hospital, since that's where infections live. He had a transient infection. Uh, and then and then, you know, they but they couldn't confront it. They did, His treating doctors would not say that. So they actually tried to prove it on the basis of going back, getting all the medicines he was taking, then calling another expert to explain those medicines. Um, and for us, the easiest part of that was the person they picked had no idea about Mr. Kransky. It was like a pharmacy, a pharmacist. Uh, and so that cross for us was uh, relatively easy because, um, you know, he had no idea what these things were, which what they were being prescribed for. And uh, and so they tried that and they failed on that, mostly because. I think maybe if they had picked something and stuck with it, but by that time they had claimed so many things from high blood pressure. I mean, they, the opening PowerPoint in their opening statement originally had an ashtray in it with like a thousand cigarette butts because he had a history of smoking. He of course had quit. And, and so, okay, but this is not a lung cancer case, you know? And, and so I got, uh, or as a team, we got that taken out because it made no sense. It, I wondered at the end whether we should have left it in because it was so offensive uh, that, you know, uh, and there was uh, a cross we missed out on that we got in discovery about, uh, you know, I, I assume, doctor, you recommend never putting new hips in anyone who's ever smoked. Right. Uh, because, uh, you know, it's just like they can't see past their nose to where that doesn't make sense. So anyway, um, they had tried way too hard to demonize him by the end of the case for the infection. We were worried about it, uh, but after they finished with it, when we realized they don't have an orthopedic surgeon up here, they have no data, they have really nothing other than fingers crossed behind their back, maybe this will work. Yeah, well, you know, the other thing about it is the defense of this case, you know, and, and you pointed it out in the opening which is, you know, they're going to try and come in here and tell you that this uh, this hip is not defective at the same time that they recalled it. And at the same time that, you know, you, you know, you had um, cross examined not only the the president of the company, but their, you know, uh, director of uh, biomechanical uh, biomedical uh, right. design or something like that. And all of them basically had said, yes, we recalled it because, uh, you know, we had a lot of significant failure rates and and you know, essentially that it was defective. So it, it just makes, you know, it, it really uh, undermines all of their credibility at trial, I have to imagine. Yeah, well, and and so they, they they did a really interesting thing with the device. They Even at the end, they couldn't bring themselves to fully recall it. So for a year before recalling it, they just stopped making it, hoping that everybody would sell their inventory. Uh, and... Uh, of course, that didn't stop the at one point they were one in five had failed within four years. OK, if you ever thought of anything you owned, that 20 percent of them don't work, uh, let alone a medical device. Nobody had seen anything like that. Uh, and at that point, you know, uh, they recalled it and then they tried to style it just as kind of, well, it's, you know, there may have been a higher than average. And this was a public service that we did this and it was internal. But. You know, there was no way for them to run from that. Uh, the way to run was on case specific causation. And that's why they actually weren't unhappy that uh, uh, Bill Kransky was the plaintiff. He had so many things wrong with him. If we're going to win a case on the defense of, look, this person has so many things wrong, uh, it couldn't be our hip. This was the one. And when that didn't happen, I think that's when they all had to kind of sit down and make an assessment okay do we really want to do more of this 
Yeah, because I guess, and I don't know if everybody who listens to the podcast understands, but normally in an MDL setting, you you sort of have these bellwether cases that the the plaintiff gets to choose, like maybe like you know four or five of their good right. cases. Then the defense are going to choose like four or five of the cases they want to try. This, this didn't fall into either of those categories, right? No, man. So it's a completely different playbook. California, uh, we picked a case of a fellow with. We started knowing that he had fragile health and might die. And we asked the judge to stick us at this, the top of the list in California. And that required that we get a trial day within 120 days. And so it, it just completely uh, uh, got us out of the MDL model, which you have described. You pick four, you pick four, then I'll pick two. Then you'll do discovery. Then we'll take another 10 months. This all happened in 120 days. Like, we're not ready. We can't do it. Like, of course you can do it. You, you know, you're huge law firms. There's just three of us. Yeah, we have the three plaintiff's lawyers living in a parking lot in our cars. We can do this. <laughs> right. Yeah, they, 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 had, uh, they had plenty. Of, the one thing they didn't have was any shortage of lawyers. Right. Uh, I recall actually one day, and, and, you know, Brian is a gifted guy, and he knows when to be dramatic. And at one point, we were in trial one day, and there were like 40 people in the courtroom, and 30 of them were lawyers for Johnson & Johnson. <laughs> and so they called one of their experts and Brian was cross-examining him. He said, let me ask you this. When you were getting prepared, was the person in the blue shirt there? No. How about the person in the white shirt? Yes. <laughs> How about the person in the pink shirt? Yes. And just walking around the room. I mean, it was just crazy. I, I had no idea what those people were doing. It was like a lawyer's full employment act. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, yeah. And that's one of those cross examine cross examinations. It doesn't really have anything to do with the case, but is is extremely effective anyway. Yes. <laughs> yes. True, true. And it had something to do with the case because right. from that point on, you know, the jurors were coming in, kind of looking in the back of the room. We're 23 people sitting all together. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Exactly. Um, well, Mike, this has been uh, just fantastic. Um, I want to remind everybody we've been talking about the case of uh, Kransky versus uh, Depew Orthopedics. And uh, it resulted in an $8,338,136 verdict uh, that led later on or helped lead later on to a $2.5 billion settlement. Is there anything else, Mike, about, uh, about uh, Kransky versus Depew that, you, that um, you want to make sure our listeners know that we haven't had a chance to, um, to talk about? Uh, no, I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, what I said before we began, it was great to be able to collaborate. It was great uh, uh, in a case with a modest size injury uh, to get a substantial verdict. In hindsight, it's probably a good thing we didn't get punitive damages because we didn't get it. Although it got appealed and made some good law, you know, the cases settled um, much harder for them to settle cases where there's a punitive damage verdict. Right, right. And uh, and we got, you know, in a reasonable amount of time working with the MDL, we got a global resolution that got north of 97 percent of the people paid. There were some people who opted out. There were a couple more cases who got tried. Um, and uh, for one day, we uh, made the price of Johnson and Johnson stock go down. But in the great <laughs> right. tradition of a company that specializes in marketing bad products, it was back. Where it had been two days later. Oh. Right, right. <laughs> well, uh, well, Mike, uh, let me remind everybody that they can uh, look up Mike Kelly at walkuplawoffice.com. That's W-A-L-K-U-P lawoffice.com. Um, and uh, I did want to finish the podcast on uh, two of the quotes I read that you said in your closing, and I, I just loved them. And I, and I have to imagine that you probably have a lot of quotes like this and you just decide to pull them out where you want. But, but one of them, uh, you said that, that, um, that the point the defense was making was like rabbits carrying lettuce. It's not getting there. And then the other one was uh, another point they said you said is a it's like putting a queen size sheet on a king size pet on a king size bed. It just doesn't fit. That's <laughs> so, right. I, I love yeah. this. And I have to imagine there's a there's a book of Mike Kelly, just sort of uh, witticisms out there that you just pull them out whenever you want. I'm not sure about that, but I've <laughs> used that before. Right. right. <laughs> so funny. I thought those were great Tuesday, but I'd never heard either one of them. And I was right. like, I like that. Uh, no, I, I liked them both. I liked them both. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been great. And, uh, and we really appreciate you coming on the show and um, hope you continue to have uh, just a great, great day and a great week. Thanks so much. My pleasure. 
Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.